Content warning. This episode contains mentions of PTSD, sexual abuse, pedophilia, kidnapping, human trafficking, and forced marriage. Welcome to the second episode of PAVE, where I sit down with inspiring professionals in the field of crime and justice to uncover their personal journeys and how they've made countering crime their life's work. This episode, we've got the privilege of diving into the extraordinary work of someone who's dedicated his life to transforming the lives of victims of human trafficking in Vietnam. Our guest is Michael Brzezowski, the founder of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. For over two decades, Michael and his team have been shining a light in the darkness, rescuing and providing essential support to more than 1,000 children who have experienced unimaginable hardships. Today, we'll delve into Michael's personal journey, from the challenges to successes. You'll hear the heartwarming stories of children whose lives have been changed forever. So be prepared to be inspired as we explore the power of compassion, resilience, and the unwavering belief that every child deserves a chance to thrive. I'm Michael Brzezowski, the founder of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. Uh, so we're a charity working in Vietnam, registered in, in Australia and, and in some other countries, including the US and the UK. But all of our work is here in Vietnam on the issue of human trafficking. And my own background is that I was a high school English teacher before I got into this work. For our audience, could you share what Blue Dragon does as an organization? We started out more than 20 years ago helping street children in Hanoi. So we would find ways to assist street children to get off the street and go back to school, get into accommodation or go back to their families and then get, get onto jobs when they were ready. And we still do that work. And we also work now in the field of human trafficking. So Vietnam has an issue of Vietnamese people being trafficked to neighboring countries, and there's trafficking within Vietnam as well. And we have a model whereby we rescue people who are in slavery and have called for help. And while we're doing that, and all of the aftercare and support for people who've survived that experience, we're also setting out on the question of how to end human trafficking, how to prevent it from happening before it happens in the first place. So it's quite a broad scope of work. Uh, there's a lot to it, but it's very effective. Let's go right to the start of your journey. How did this all start? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I came to Vietnam without any intention to start an NGO. It was really the last thing on my mind. I, As a high school teacher, I had visited Vietnam and I, and I thought I'd come and work here in education. So when I first arrived in Vietnam in 2002, that's what I did. I, I was a, a teacher in an economics university, teaching master's level students English and helping them write their economics thesis. But while I was doing that, I was encountering street children. So they were mostly boys uh, and they'd often migrated to the city with their mothers and both the mother and the son were working and remitting the money home to, to other family members. Uh, and and this really appealed to me, like this idea that that there were these young people who would sacrifice their own education so that their their family could survive. So I started to teach them English, and some of my students at the economics university found out about this and came along and said, "Hey, we could do this with you. We'd love to volunteer." And that was really the start of Blue Dragon. 
So we didn't set out saying, let's create an NGO and let's end human trafficking. It was really just a case that we were in the city. There were kids who needed help. And we said, let's help them. So at which point did Blue Dragon go from teaching English to saving children from human trafficking? So in the early years, especially, I think it would be safe to say that I wasn't very good at planning. And and even now, of course, Blue Dragon, we now have 130 staff. We operate in, in multiple locations around the country. Of course, now we have to do planning uh, and, and budgets and so on. But even still, our approach is very organic. So we do have our plans, but they don't master us. It's the other way around. Our plans serve us. So as we grow, new issues come up, sometimes very surprising issues. Things change. And, and so we continue to adapt. It's a very adaptive and responsive model that we've created to work in this environment. And just as an example, the street kids who I met 20 years ago, they were coming in from some very specific provinces around Hanoi to earn money doing shoe shine work. That doesn't happen anymore. It's very, very rare that you'll see those children. The children who are here now are coming to the city from, from the mountains um, they're usually ethnic minority, boys and girls, and they are actually being trafficked and exploited here in the city. They're coming for different reasons to those original shine kids, and they're looking for different work opportunities. So along the way, you know, that's an example of how much things have changed and how Blue Dragon has had to adapt constantly to the situation before us. And going back to your first rescue, how did that come about? Well, there are, there are actually two first rescues that I can talk about. One is our first rescue of a child within Vietnam. So at that time, Blue Dragon was just a couple of years old. We were, we were really just setting out and we saw ourselves as a street kids organization. We were all volunteering. By that time, we might have had one or two paid staff who were, who were just kind of either university students or fresh graduates who were still looking for their real job, but were with Blue Dragon in the meantime. And I was taking a short break. So I live in Hanoi. That's where I'm speaking to you from. But I took a short trip to Ho Chi Minh City. And while I was there, I saw a boy who I later learned uh, his name was Ngoc. He was 13 years old uh, and he had been trafficked. He was selling flowers on the streets in the tourist area. And it was very clear every time he sold a flower, he had to go and give the money immediately to some women who were sitting at the end of the street watching him. And, and I realized he'd been trafficked. I discovered that he was illiterate. He'd never been to school, even though he was 13. And he really wanted to get home. So I, I tried to help him get away from the traffickers. And basically, I failed. I tried to pay them off. And they just took my money. And that was it. Nock was still a slave. Uh, but at that time, one of our volunteers in Hanoi was, it, was a young man named Van, who was a law student. And Van got on the phone to these women, kind of calling their bluff, saying, hey, look, um, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't muck around with that foreign guy. He's a very important person. And, and they believed him and put Ngoc on a train and sent him home. And so we then went to visit his family. And we discovered that in his village where he'd grown up, a lot of young people had been trafficked, uh, mostly into sweatshops, some some also to working on the street. And so then we started our process of rescuing children who'd been trafficked into domestic slavery, so trafficking within Vietnam. Our first rescue overseas came a few years after that, where one of one of the girls who was in our street kids program in Hanoi 
she called for help from China. We didn't even know that she'd been trafficked. Everyone thought she'd run away from home. And one day uh, in July 2007, she called for help. And all we knew that was she was in China. And we reported that to the police. But of course, there was not enough information for the police to take action. So some of our staff decided, well, we'll go to China and we'll look for her. And they did. They found her and they ended up rescuing her and five other Vietnamese girls who were in a brothel. So they were our two first rescues, the, the rescue within Vietnam and the rescue across the border. And, and they really shaped the organization that Blue Dragon has since become. Then the question here would be, why are those children getting trafficked? Like, what is driving the demand for it? Well, the, the reasons are, are complex, but in a way simple to understand. Poverty is a very big factor. But it's a little bit more than poverty. It's not just lack of money. Very often it's a lack of opportunity and a lack of understanding. So a really typical situation is that there's a family in a, in a very poor area where there, there are not a lot of services around and possibly family members haven't been to school or, or aren't well educated, but they want to improve their conditions. They want to get a better life. A trafficker then takes advantage of that. Now, our research shows that the traffickers are often from the, a very similar background to their victims. So if the victim, for example, is very poor and from an ethnic minority community, hasn't been through school, the trafficker is probably from a similar background. And the trafficker also is looking for ways to break out of this poverty. And they too may have been promised by another trafficker higher up the chain that they'll be able to make money and, and have a better life. So everyone's looking for a better life. The trafficking then takes place by deception. So the trafficker promises the family, look, come with me or let your children come with me. I'll make sure you get a good job. You'll have a good income. It all seems very safe. And, you know, often a response to human trafficking, people will say, well, you need more awareness raising. We've rescued people who knew that trafficking might be a risk for them. People who knew that, that maybe this person offering them a job or offering an opportunity might actually exploit them. And when we ask the, the person, well, why did you go with them anyway? The answer is because at least I had a chance. If I stayed at home, I had nothing. I had no opportunity, no possibility of changing my life. If I went with that person, at least there was a chance that they would be telling me the truth. So it's people who are desperate for an opportunity to change their life. Basically, that's the core of it. Of, although, of course, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's it in essence. I came to know about Blue Dragon's work a few years back through a documentary on the culture of bright grabbing in Vietnam into China. How's that played into this issue of cross-border trafficking? Yeah, so the documentary that you're referring to um, is really worth watching for anybody interested in this subject. It's by a, a documentary filmmaker named Ben Randall. He's written some books on, on his experience as well. And it's in a particular location in northern Vietnam where part of the local custom involves what they call bride grabbing. Um, now, it's a, it's a real minority of people in Vietnam who practice that custom. It belongs to a particular ethnic minority group. But the way it works is the man kind of, he has his eyes set on a particular girl, so he grabs her and takes her to his home, and three days later, she can either leave or decide to stay with him. And I think, you know, in its original form, many years ago, it was kind of a, 
an accepted custom. Uh, I don't I don't think it was necessarily meant to be as awfully violent as it sounds and and as it is. There may have been a greater degree of consent involved than uh, than than we see today. But clearly, it's a custom that traffickers can take hold of, uh, can take advantage of. And so that's what Ben Randall looked at, the story of some girls who were abducted by traffickers through that bride-grabbing uh, scheme and were taken to China. Now, lots of Vietnamese girls and women uh, get take, have been in the past taken to China and sold as brides. So that's one way, the bride-grabbing. But a lot more of it is about exploitation, about the, the deception, inviting somebody for a job or, or inviting somebody you know, to go for a holiday and then selling them. What's happening there, of course, is that there's a shortage of women in in China, and and so the traffickers are trying to fill that market. They're exploiting that need that both Chinese men have and that Vietnamese women uh, have for looking for a job. I would add that it also is a really complex issue where sometimes the men who who buy these brides from Vietnam have also been deceived. Now that doesn't let them off the hook. They're not innocent if they. If they are deceived, but then they keep the woman there against her will anyway, they have clearly done something wrong. But many of them go into this thinking that they're dealing with a marriage broker who's going to introduce them to a Vietnamese woman who wants a Chinese husband. So again, a complex issue and one with a lot of factors driving it. Looking a bit deeper into these syndicates, how do they work? Well, think of them as, as an ordinary business. And there are lots of business models. There are lots of ways they can work. Sometimes it really is a syndicate where there's a lot of people and one person will be in Vietnam. You'll deceive a, a woman or a girl. And of course, boys and men also get, get trafficked. You know, that, that trafficker might get them to the border and hand them to the next person in the chain who, who takes them on and finally sells them. Um, other times, the, the business model is more like a network. One one person traffics a woman and sells her to the next network, who might sell her to another network, and so on until the the final sale is made. So there are lots of different ways that they can operate. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the people who get arrested are likely to be the really low level traffickers who who might not be the you know the the brains behind behind it all. Sometimes they're victims themselves, where where they've been deceived into thinking they were doing something legal or, or doing something good. And and so those at the upper end often get away with it or, or at least don't get put in front of a court. So it's hard to know much about them and how they operate. It's one thing to handle domestic cases, but it's very different when it comes to cross-border rescue operations. What sort of systemic challenges does a team face? Yeah. Now, of course, I, I've got to be careful what I say about, about those operations. Um, because we need to safeguard ourselves, make sure that that the traffickers who are watching your podcast uh, don't uh, you know don't don't learn our our secrets. What I would say, the key to this to success is uh, collaboration with with police on on both sides. So making sure that what we do is transparent and open. Um, but but of course, getting information is very, very difficult. Very often, like in that first rescue, Back in 2007, where, when we rescued, went to look for a girl um, who'd been trafficked across the border, she didn't know where she was. Very often, the people who call for help do not know where they are. And, and so one of the big challenges, first of all, is in looking for her. 
And and there's just not, you asked about systemic challenges. There's just not a, a strong system in place to deal with transnational human trafficking. And I would really have to add, that's not an issue just because it's Vietnam or just because it's China. I'm not sure of any countries that do a fantastic job of this. What's even more complex now is that Blue Dragon is still doing uh, rescue work for, for people who've been trafficked into China, but also Myanmar, Laos and Cambodia. So each of those countries has its own legal systems and its own legal issues. Myanmar at the moment is in a really perilous state. So getting cooperation with authorities in those countries where law enforcement is weaker than Vietnam or weaker than China, that's also a, a significant challenge for us. Considering that you've been tackling human trafficking since 2007 and we are in 2023, so that's about 17 years, has there been any changes in trends? Oh, significant. When we first started, a lot of the, the Vietnamese girls and women we were rescuing had been trafficked into, uh, into brothels in China. And just a couple of years after that, the, the Chinese government had a significant crackdown on those illegal brothels. And, and that problem, it didn't completely end, but it really reduced substantially. And so after that, a lot of our rescues were of girls and women who'd been sold as brides. And I think that that sort of trafficking has declined, but we're still rescuing people. This past week, we've rescued a woman uh, who is 62 years old, who was trafficked 28 years ago. So there are still people in China who were trafficked maybe two years ago, maybe 20 years ago, and sold as brides. What's really happened in the last few years has been that diversifying of the types and destinations of human trafficking. Now, that's been brought about in part because of COVID, uh, but in larger part because China has built a fence between Vietnam and China, which has really disrupted a lot of trade and activities between the two countries. So people might now be thinking, well, surely it's a good thing to have that fence there because it stops human traffickers. I hope it stops human traffickers. In fact, a lot of trafficking can take place through legal border crossings, because remember that a lot of trafficking is by deception. So the woman or the victim goes apparently willingly, thinking that they're going for a job, for example. So it hasn't completely stopped that trafficking, but it has stopped a lot of the informal trade and the informal employment sector. That's left a lot of people looking for new jobs, and that's left them vulnerable to being trafficked. So we're now seeing a lot of girls and women being trafficked to Myanmar, where in the northern states that border China, there are, there's a lot of brothels and no law enforcement. And, and these are brutal places where it's a terrible fate for, for any person to end up in one of those brothels. There, there are also these what we call pig butchering scams in Cambodia, where again, people are trafficked to Cambodia and now to Laos as well believing that they're going to work in, in online marketing or work in a, in a real job. And instead, they're forced to scam people in other countries. Some of this is casino work as well. So they're in there against their will, but their job is to scam you wherever you are in the world to make money for their slave masters. Um, now, this type of human trafficking, we were not dealing with this three years ago. This, this is brand new. And, and it's in response to the needs of people in Vietnam and in other countries to get jobs and the, the opportunity, the vulnerability created by COVID and, and by that fence that's been built. 
So in the past few years with COVID, Blue Dragon went from focusing on China to now multiple countries and multiple legal systems. In what ways have the structure and the approach of a team changed? In, in some way, it hasn't changed at all. It's more the implementation, the activities that have had to change. Blue Dragon, as I described earlier, we've always had that organic approach and that has served us really, really well. The situation of street kids has changed in the 20 plus years we've been working. The, the types of trafficking we're dealing with has changed. And because of the model, because of the way we work, we're able to adapt very, very rapidly. So that's in our leadership structure, in our philosophy of how we work, uh, and even in our funding structure. So we make sure that that we have a mix of funding that allows us uh, to rapidly change gears when we need to. Uh, th- this model really worked well during the COVID years when suddenly most of the work we normally did had to stop. And yet we were busier than ever during COVID lockdowns because we were out delivering food, uh, helping people pay their electricity bills. My staff even at times were delivering babies in people's homes. Twice, I believe that happened because we were just able to very quickly change what we were doing. The mission didn't change. It was just the implementation of it that changed. Focusing a bit more on the survivors, what is the impact on them after such experiences? The answer is it's devastating. Look, this woman we we just brought home in the last few days, she's in her 60s. Her son was uh, two or three years old when she was trafficked, and he's in his 30s now. I can't imagine how she's going to rebuild her life. Other people might be a little bit luckier. We've also rescued people who, who were trafficked only days before or weeks before. But even in, even in those cases, what, what the traffickers have done is exploit trust. You know, you're not grabbed off the street by a, by a stranger. You're sold by somebody that you trusted. So after that experience, how do you trust anybody again? We've rescued people who even had, have had the experience of a fake rescue where somebody has come in just as we are doing, saying, hey, I'm here to help you. I'm going to get you home and have taken that victim and sold them to somebody else. How do you come back from that? How do you build trust? So that is one of the biggest challenges that survivors of this trafficking face. They also are made to feel that it was their fault and they live with that guilt. Even though you and I and everyone listening to this knows that the victim of trafficking is exactly that. They're a victim. They, they are not responsible for what happened. And yet the trafficker's skill, the art of the trafficker, is making the victim feel responsible. We've seen cases where the trafficker, for example, built up like a, a romantic relationship with their target, maybe went on dates. Maybe the family even knew the trafficker. They'd come and go. They might even go on a holiday and then come back. And then one day, the trafficker says to the victim, let's go on a dirty weekend. Let's go off to China. We can stay in a nice hotel, but please don't tell your father. You know, he won't, he won't be happy if, we know, if he knows we're going for a, for a weekend away together. It'll just be our secret. And so the victim then buys into this and maybe lies to her family or lies to her friend or drops out of school. And it's all so that he or she feels guilty, feels responsible. So that, that experience 
shatters people's self-perception and, and it can take years to rebuild that. And for some, I'm sure they never recover what they really were before. It's a matter of building on what they can to, to start their life almost over again from the start. So trafficking is devastating, which is one of the reasons we have to deal with it. We have to stop it. Because you mentioned fake rescues, how do you develop that trust with survivors to run these rescue operations? Yeah, that's really important, actually. So our rescues are in response to a call for help. A, a very typical scenario would be that somebody who's been trafficked finds a way to call for help. They borrow someone's mobile phone, they steal a telephone, whatever, and they call their mother. 99% of the time, Ash, they call mum. They don't call Blue Dragon, they don't call the police mum. Then the message will eventually get to us. So we're, we're going to then be in contact with the mother. And that gives the victim some confidence that we are for real. Having said that, there are still people we rescue who do not fully trust us. But like I was explaining earlier about taking a chance, there are victims who say, I'm not 100% sure you're here to save me, but what, what's my option? I've got nothing better, so, so I'll try. And this, this is really fascinating. But even after we've rescued someone, brought them back to Vietnam, they've reunited with their family, and we offer ongoing support, even then, they might still not trust 100% that we're going to act in their best interests. And that tells you how damaging human trafficking is, that someone would have such problems with trust that they even are not confident in the person who has clearly rescued them. Not everyone has that level of uh, psychological issues after trafficking, but many do. It shows you how damaging this is. What are the facilities that Blue Dragon provides as part of the recovery process? So just as I described how as an organization we seek to be really agile, really responsive, our services are very diverse. Um, and, and the reason we're like that is we don't ever want to say to somebody, we can't help you because we don't have that service. So in-house, we have social workers and psychologists uh, who, who do amazing work. One of our psychologists, for example, I suspect she might be one of the most experienced people in the world in counseling people who've been trafficked. We have teachers on staff, we have lawyers, and the lawyers are quite an interesting addition to our team. I said earlier that we had a law student volunteering with us, a young man named Van. All these years later, he's our chief lawyer, and he leads a team of lawyers who are involved in this work. So they're they're involved in the rescues, they're, they're involved in representing victims uh, in court. So once the trafficker has been arrested, our lawyers will stand in court on behalf of the victim so that she or he doesn't have to go to court uh, and represent them there. We have shelters, both short-term and longer-term. Uh, we, we help people get back to school or jobs or university. Uh, we, we help families to start farms, build houses whatever they need to start their life over. So, so it's very diverse. And that's because people who get trafficked are not all one kind of person. Uh, you know, we, we have people who've survived trafficking come and say, I want to go to university. I want to become a, a doctor. There are those who say, I, I just want to go home and, and have a family. So whatever they want to do, we want to support that. 
and we don't want to put them all in one box saying, you know, you're a survivor, you need to learn handicrafts and sell that at a market. We we want everyone to have the full range of options, the same as any other human being. Now, focusing on yourself and behind the scenes of the people at the front line, I'm assuming that burnouts might happen because this can be a dark place to be working in. How do you handle that? How do you keep going? Over the years, there are times I've not handled this at all well. And the same with my team. You know, I've been burnt out. I've experienced PTSD, uh, no question. But over the years, I and, and all of us here at Blue Dragon have learned that we absolutely have to take care of ourselves, that it's not a luxury to take time off, not a luxury to talk to somebody who, who has expertise. So we, we do make sure that all of our staff, including me, have access to external counselling. But in reality, on, on a day-to-day basis, I think we can get by because we can see progress. As lo- I think if you, you know, if you look at a really bad situation, if you look at somebody who's in, who's in real trouble, whose life is in danger, and you can't help them, I think that's when, when you have the most stress, when, when it's diffi- most difficult for you as the helper. But if you can actually help someone, if you can get them out of slavery, if you can help them on the road to recovery, then you're more able to cope. And and so for Blue Dragon, we need to really focus on what we've done well. We need to remind ourselves and celebrate, which we're honestly we're not very good at. But but it's important to even celebrate something very small, a small change, a small development. So some of it is about looking at like how do we build structures to take care of ourselves. And, and some of it's about, you know, the culture that we build as an organization. One, one thing I would add to that, Ash, is that speaking of the culture of an organization, something that's vital is networking, collaborating, and not doing it on your own. At times in, in my history, I've kind of been on my own or a very small group of us have faced a dark issue together, and it always ends badly. You have to surround yourself with good people who, who you can rely on and who will share the load. That's absolutely key. You mentioned instances when you can't save an individual. Has that happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or at least in the short term, we couldn't. And, and what I'm thinking of there is a situation that arose about 10 years ago. We'd been working with street kids, you know, from the start of Blue Dragon. And every now and then, of course, we would hear a young person disclose that they'd been sexually abused. Um, So these were boys out on the streets of the city. And then starting around 2013, we started to hear this more and more. Like every night we were meeting kids who'd been abused. We were meeting boys who would disclose that they'd been approached by by somebody inviting them to a hotel in return for money. Uh, And it it grew rapidly. Now we we were going to the police about this. And at first we didn't understand it, but we couldn't, we couldn't seem to get a response from the police, which is unusual because here in Vietnam, people really do protect children. But what we learned, and this is part of the value of having lawyers on, on staff, we came to see that the way the law was written, boys and men could not be considered as victims of sexual abuse. Females were victims and males were perpetrators, the way the law was written. So actually, the police were very concerned about this, but their hands were tied. Now, it took a few years, but we eventually changed that law. You know, there was a lot of support. It wasn't Blue Dragon out on our own 
shouting about this. There were a lot, lots of government officials who were absolutely on board and wanted to do this. And so a few years later, that law changed. But during that period of those few years, there were lots of times when we knew about children being abused, we knew who was abusing them, and we couldn't do anything to stop it. And, and that, I, I would have to say, were, were some of the most difficult years that we have faced as an organization. From law reforms to saving lives, the amount of success your team has achieved is truly incredible. Do you have a top proudest moment? That's a, that's a hard one. I have trouble picking just one. I think I, in one way, I want to say the law reform of, of that law to protect children, because that has probably had the most impact of all of our work. But in fact, I think more about individual children who we've rescued, who, who I just know that if we hadn't been there for them, they wouldn't have made it through. And I've got to be careful what I say, because uh, the person I'm thinking of in particular might even end up hearing this. But there are young people that we've worked with who uh, even I at times have thought, I don't think we can help this child. I don't think we can we can get them out of this. And years later, they're not, they're not only out of it, but they come back to Blue Dragon to, to help, to volunteer or, or to join us as staff members, or, or they go on to lead very fulfilling lives. And if you met them, you would have no idea what they went through as as children when they were 13, 14 years old. So I, there are some particular young people I have in mind, both, both girls and boys, who I just know if we hadn't been there, they might not still be alive. Looking forward, how do you envision human trafficking in Vietnam? Since the ultimate goal for Blue Dragon is to end human trafficking, yeah, and, and that sounds bold, but we actually have reason to think that it might be possible. That first boy we rescued, Ngoc, um, he was from a province in central Vietnam. And, and as I say, when we took him back, we could see there was a huge problem there with human trafficking. That problem doesn't exist anymore. I'm sure that every now and then there might be a case of trafficking, but that trafficking of children to sweatshops and to work on the streets, that's gone. And we made that happen with 10 years of work, of really focused, intense work. Now, doing that, we kind of developed a model where we were looking at, um, first of all, rescuing kids, getting those factories shut down that were, that were recruiting the children. And then in the home villages, we were getting kids back into school. We were building houses for families. We were helping family members to start farms or, or to raise fish in the lagoon or you know, to earn a source of income. We were teaching teachers and school personnel how to look out for and prevent uh, children dropping out of school and then getting trafficked. We were working with government officials. So we, we developed this model with a lot of different elements to it, and it stopped trafficking. We've then taken that to some other parts of Vietnam. And what we're seeing is when we implement this model, trafficking kind of stops. And that raises the question for us. Well, if we can stop it in you know, in these five areas, why can't we stop it in every area of Vietnam? Now, the only reason is that we're not that big and we're never going to be that big. So what we're doing, we're testing out this model, we're refining it, we're trying it out in different locations. You know, Vietnam is a very diverse country. What works up in the Northern Mountains might not work in the Mekong Delta down south. So we're trying it out in different locations, in urban and rural environments to see how do you change? How do you modify? 
this model for different places. And as we do that, we're showing it, we're showcasing it to the government. Eventually, we want to be in a position where we can say, if you want to end human trafficking, this is what you need to do. And to have really specific, clear information about how it works. And we believe that then if that's rolled out around the country, human trafficking should plummet from from current levels down to pretty much nothing. Now, I know that there'll always be trafficking. You can't eradicate a crime, right? It's not a disease. It will always be there. But you can take it from being something that happens every day to something that occasionally happens. And when it does, the authorities know what to do and can jump in quickly. So that's the vision, and and we're working on that right now. And what's the biggest challenge you're facing that's keeping you away from achieving this vision? I hate to say it, but right now, at the time that we're talking, the the world economy is not doing well, and and so we're feeling a little bit frustrated that we've got these plans and visions, we're ready to go, but we have to have to go slowly、uh, and, until the world economy picks up and we can get the funding for what we need to do. But really, that's that's our biggest challenge. Everything's in place. We've got the model. We've got really good support from the Vietnamese authorities. It's just getting the the petrol to put into the motor, and you know people around the world are being very supportive of this. We're we're really lucky actually to have great support from people in lots of different countries, including here in Vietnam and in lots of neighbouring countries, but even around the world. It's just a matter of us harnessing enough support to to really drive this model along. And you know, one day in a few years, Ash, we might be having a very different conversation here. Uh, I, I hope one day the podcast is how we ended human trafficking. That's the dream, and I th- I have reason to believe it's it's possible. Wrapping things up, we have a few questions from our audience. First one is: What is a common myth people have about human trafficking? It's it's funny that you ask that question. I keep a blog,、um, lifeisalongstory.com. Don't mind me giving that a, a shameless plug, but but that's actually the topic of this week's blog. The myth that Being trafficked means you're you're locked up in chains and you you know you physically can't escape. The woman we've recently rescued, who is in her sixties, she hasn't been locked up. She's been able to go shopping, take her children to school, put the trash out at night, maybe even go on short holidays. But she couldn't escape. You don't have to be chained up to be in slavery. Somebody can hold your passport.、Um, somebody can make you believe that there's no escape. Forcing a woman to have children stops her or makes her think twice, knowing that leaving might mean she'll never see those children again. So there are lots of ways to hold somebody in slavery that might not look like slavery. What is the most important personality trait someone would need to work in your field? Oh, can I give you two answers to that instead of one? One one has to be resilience. Nothing always goes well. There are times in this work. That I go home at the end of the day, thinking, "What just happened? <laughs> Everything's gone wrong." And and the next day, things might come good again. Things usually come good eventually. So being prepared to hang on and see see the bad times through that's that's essential. But the other thing, part two to to this, is a, a willingness to change. To not start out with a fixed idea and say, "This is it. This is what you have to do." You've got to be agile. You've got to learn as you go. And and that means putting your ego at the door, checking, making sure you've got that humility in your in your suitcase, and being prepared to to change as everything around you changes. 
What is one piece of advice you'd give to someone that's starting out in a career that's similar to yours? Be prepared that it will take a long time. This isn't isn't something that will happen quickly. Blue Dragon's vision to end human trafficking is something we've only been talking about for two years. Until then, we had a different vision statement. So our vision has evolved. Uh, Over the years, our work has constantly evolved. And maybe we're not there yet. Maybe in the future, we'll we'll take on new forms or new new challenges. Um, but you, however you start out, that's not how you're going to finish. So be make sure you're in it for the long term. And the final question for me: What is one key takeaway that you want our learners to pick up from this episode? Anything's possible. I came to Vietnam as a high school English teacher. But simply by by seeing what was needed, seeing what was around me and engaging my passion, I've been able to create an organization that is now saying, we think we can end human trafficking. 20 years ago, nobody would have ever guessed that. So you can't guess what's going to happen in your career, in your life. So hang on for the ride. Take every opportunity um, because you just don't know what's possible. You've come to the end of the second episode of PAVE. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more content like this, be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter called The Crime Scope. And if you'd like to know more about Blue Dragon or any of the references we've made in this episode, all the details are in the description below. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll catch you in the next one.